Welcome to the first episode of Folk Tunes and Englishness, a three-part series of podcasts in which we talk about English traditional music, its history, and how it's played and passed on today. I'm Dr Alice Little. I'm a research fellow in music at the University of Oxford. I've been working on a Knowledge Exchange Fellowship with the English Folk Dance and Song Society to find out more about the 18th century tune books they have in the Vaughan Williams Memorial Library at Cecil Sharp House in London. These tune books are collections of tunes, some made at home and others made to share with friends or to sell. I'm interested in both handwritten manuscripts and printed books. Our intro music today is Clark's Hornpipe, performed by Boldwood. In my research, I'm particularly interested in the people who collected these tunes, whether to play the music themselves or to publish it. I've been asking why they often publish tunes under national titles, particularly Scottish and Irish, but also Welsh and English. What does it mean for a tune to be English? Was it just a marketing gimmick? Or does it refer to where the tune was collected or the style it was played in? And are these labels still relevant to musicians today? In this series, I'm going to be talking to collectors, arrangers and musicians to find out. In this first episode, we're going to find out about the history of English folk music. We'll be starting in the 17th and 18th centuries. Many of the tune books I've been studying were aimed at a dance market, at dancing masters who taught young ladies and gentlemen how to dance, and the musicians who played for dancing at balls and assemblies. The phrase dancing master referred to both the tutor and also to the tune books they used. The most famous of these books is the collection first put together by John Playford in 1651, which was originally called the English Dancing Master, although the word English was dropped after the first edition. I sat down with Becky Price. Hello, I'm Becky Price. Matt Coatesworth. Hi, so I'm Matt Coatesworth. And Jeremy Barlow. Hello, I'm Jeremy. To ask them about the history of English folk tunes since the 17th century, about the tunes they've each researched, and what they've each done with this music in performance. Becky and Matt have both played in the band Boldwood, and Matt has published three collections of tunes with a fourth in progress called the Boldwood Dancing Master. I asked Becky how it all began. I trained as a classical pianist and gave it up and took up the accordion to concentrate on French and English dance music. And I formed Boldwood in 2003 to perform English dance music from tune books between about 1650 and 1800. It actually started kind of by accident. I was working with a bagpiper called John Swain and we were looking for English music to play and we went on a research trip to the Vaughan Williams Library. We didn't really find very much bagpipe music, I don't know why, we were obviously looking in the wrong books and I kept finding all these fantastic fiddle tunes so I went back for a week by myself and just researched all the amazing fiddle music I kept finding and decided that 
I needed a band to play it all. It started out as a Kaylee band, just as a local Kaylee band to do village hops and village fates and Kayleys and stuff like that, and then kind of morphed and got a bit out of hand and ended up making an album and doing all sorts of things. Let's hear Lucas Forever from the Boldwood album Feet Don't Fail Me Now. for repertoire for what would later become Boldwood were you looking for English tunes? Its focus was always very much English dance music my original manuscript book that I took there to copy the tunes out in I did write out quite a lot of Scots and Welsh stuff as well the Scots stuff never got played in Boldwood but the Welsh stuff did and we actually recorded four Welsh tunes on the first album my priority at that point was what I felt to be overlooked and neglected music. And that included English tunes. These tunes were then published in three, soon to be four, tune books. I asked Matt Coatsworth to tell me a bit more about the Boldwood Dancing Master. Hi, I'm Matt Coatsworth. I've played classical and folk music all through my life. And I suppose the thing that's been really interesting for me over the last kind of decade or so has has been thinking about where do all these tunes come from? So one of the things I've done is produce three Boldwood Dancing Masters, and there's a fourth one that's being worked on at the moment. When we first started thinking about putting a book together, Becky had found a lot of material, and then I'd found quite a lot of material as well. And we decided that between us, it would be nice for other people to play these tunes because a lot of the time we were hearing people saying, where do you get that tune from? So we put the first book together rather differently from the second and third and what will become the fourth book. So you used a number of tune books at the Bodleian Library in Oxford, as well as those at the Vaughan Williams Memorial Library in London. Did your approach to collecting these tunes change over the course of compiling these four tune books? So the first one was really just, this is what we've been playing for the last few years. Once we got onto the second book and beyond there, so I was being much more systematic about it. But one thing that both Becky and I had been very keen to do with Boldwood was to make sure that the tunes were always tunes that we loved to play as a band. And then I suppose, interestingly, now this is kind of moving on to the, to the fourth book. The big question that's been asked once we've been putting the books together is, why don't you put the dance steps alongside the tunes? And the simple answer at the beginning was that we were sometimes getting material from handwritten manuscripts where there wasn't a dance step written down. But increasingly, they were coming from publications rather than handwritten sources. So that the fourth book is going to have dance steps alongside all of them. So do you think of yourself as a collector or simply as a musician? I suppose to start with, I was a collector. I felt like I just wanted to find things. I wasn't putting my my old academic hat on at all. I was just thinking about, okay, there's a good tune, I'll have that. Sometimes the tune would be picked up in a session from somebody and I might not even bother to find out the details about, you know, where, where's it from, what's the source, or things like that. Sometimes it might just be scribbled down from somewhere from listening to it on an album somewhere. But increasingly, I feel that what I'm doing now is more research than collecting. So I am keen to find out where tunes come from, whether they've got different names in different collections, and sometimes whether, in fact, it's even an English tune or not. I asked Jeremy Barlow a similar question. 
Jeremy is best known as having compiled a modern edition of John Playford's 1651 English Dancing Master. I see myself uh, as somebody who's edited the popular music of the 17th and 18th centuries, and having done editions of Playford's Dancing Master and of the Beggar's Opera, but also as a performer with my group, the Broadside Band, specialising in that repertoire. Certainly I'm a ranger because of the group I formed, the Broadside Band, to play this material. I, I did do some of the arrangements, though I gave great freedom to the players to extemporise around those arrangements, because I think that's very important. But really, my job with the Dancing Master was looking at another collector, you might say, John Playford and his successors, and, and bringing all the tunes from the successive editions of the Dancing Master together. There were 18 editions of The Dancing Master from 1651 to 1728, published by John Playford, his son Henry Playford, and John Young, who later bought the Playford's publishing business. The books are pocket-sized and include the melodies of the tunes and also the steps of the dances. We're currently listening to Jenny Pluck Pears, which was printed in editions 1 to 8, played by Jeremy's band, the Broadside Band. You see the tunes change over different editions, they add accidentals, take them away. They, where there are crotchets, they put in embellished quaver phrases and so on. In each successive edition of the book, the most popular tunes were carried forwards alongside new tunes and dances. In each edition, past printing errors were corrected, and sometimes new errors were introduced. There is a lot of debate among musicians today about which of these variations, the notes and rhythms slightly changed or the sharps and flats added or omitted, is the correct version, and a lot of people choose the version they think sounds most authentic, or in some cases most English. Jeremy's edition of the book indicates these variations above each tune and gives the edition numbers, which makes it a really fantastic resource for musicians looking to play this music. The tune you can hear now is Milson's Jig, played by the Broadside Band. I think there was, at the beginning of this century, a change, and a symptom of that was the conference I hosted on the 350th anniversary of the publication of The Dancing Master in 2001, where there was a sort of almost appetite between the folkies who played the vocalids and so on, and the early music brigade, and I sort of sat awkwardly on the fence between the two. One of the issues was, do you sharpen the leading note at the end, or do you flatten it? And I gave a paper called John Playford's Accidental Misprint, which I said I thought Playford actually had an incomplete font lot. He had a shortage of sharps. So sometimes leading notes were flattened, which are then sharpened in later editions. 
But I ended by saying, I hope I've said enough so that everybody can go on playing the tunes exactly as they always have done. The very first edition of Playford's Dancing Master, the one that was published in 1651, was actually called The English Dancing Master. What do you think we should make of this? Are the tunes in this edition English? And how do they compare to tunes in other places at the same time? They're quite distinctive, the tunes in the first edition, the English Dancing Master, as he called it. One of the distinctive features is the octave leap, which occurs in more than half the tunes. I think it's a kind of fiddle thing, really. I think it's a slightly national characteristic because if you look at French tunes, say for the French dance, the bronze, they're usually very narrow and span. Sometimes they're no more than a fifth or a sixth, the tessitura. Whereas English tunes often go way over the octave, very different characteristic. So it wasn't just a marketing gimmick then to call this book the English Dancing Master. These tunes are actually English in character in various ways. Well, it's the other two words, Dancing Master. It's a dancing master teaching dances. And dancing masters were usually and very often French. So it's a kind of saying, no, we want to do something that's really English in character, not this fanciful French stuff. <laughs> and the French dance steps and so on were complex. So it is this kind of nationalist assertion, I think. But it relates to the dances, not so much to the tunes, which vary in their sources, particularly with a number of Scottish tunes. The other great collector and source for English tune material, it's not just English tunes, but it's an English source, is uh, John Gay and the Beggar's Opera. John Gay, in that work, used popular tunes of the time. And John Playford and John Gay both had a really fantastic ear for a good tune. tune was Drive the Cold Winter Away, performed by the Broadside Band. The same tunes can often be found in tune books in a range of different countries. So if we all share the same repertoire, why do particular tunes sound Irish or English or French or Swedish? Do you think it's about the style that we play them in? Those of you who know Oxford well will know that the Half Moon Pub, which is a, a very famous pub for Irish music. I remember going there when I was an undergraduate. Some said to me, you play Irish music like a Swedish player would play. <laughs> oh, wow. So what does this mean? Can we ever say for sure what English or Irish or Swedish music is? Or does it depend on how you play it? Tell me about Rubik's Number 8 or Sterensrand, recorded by the Danish String Quartet. So this was a tune that everybody in Denmark knew from a collection by Bertel Rebers, who'd picked it up, they think, probably from sailors who'd brought the tune over from the north of England or from Scotland. And it's this whole sense of, is this tune an English tune? Is it a Scottish tune? If you're in Denmark, is it a Danish tune? And so it's because, as Jeremy was saying, and thinking about the work we did with Bold worked, if a tune's a good tune, people will play it. There are lots of tunes like that.
I know that when we play the Lily, which is a well-known tune, and, and lots of people will argue it's Welsh, lots of people will argue it's English, some people will argue it's Scottish, some people will argue it's Irish. It's a good tune. It's the way it's played, I think, that's quite interesting to make it become more English. It's possible to see how these tunes shift and change as they're adopted by different nations and reprinted in different tune books. Jeremy. On one of my CDs was showing the way a tune transfers across nationalities and there's the English tune written by Thomas Durfee with salacious words, would you have a young virgin of 15 years? That goes into the dancing master as poor Robin's maggot, so it becomes a dance tune. And then also I found it in Sweden to a Bellman song. You, Matt, you probably know about Bellman, the, the songwriter, 18th century songwriter, where it's called Shera Bruder, Dear Brother. And uh, then I've got a version by James Oswald from his Caledonian pocket companion called Saw Ye a Lassie of 15 Year. And that just got some occasional extra notes. Those extra notes just transform a very English tune into a Scottish tune just through repeating, repeating a few notes. On the subject of tunes being claimed by different nationalities and where are they from, there's a, a trad English tune I did used to hear a lot at Cayley's called Davy Davy Knickknack. And it just, it seems like, you know, I always thought of it as a really kind of quintessential English tune. And there I go researching in the Vaughan Williams Library and I find it all over 18th century English tune books as La Belle Isabelle. So was it from France? Is it an English tune that's been given a French title? Was it a French tune that got renamed? Who knows? And like the Morgan Rattlers, there's a similar sort of thing. You know, the the Scots, uh, Welsh and English all claim it with a name like the Morgan Rattler, possibly Welsh, I don't know. There's a rumour that there was a ship called the Morgan Rattler that used to sail in and out of northeast of England. That's why the northeast of England will try and claim it as their own.
It's not just tune books where this music ends up. Tunes were printed on broadsides, like large news sheets, alongside the words to songs. And for dancers, they were even written out on fans, so that ladies might revise the music while cooling off between dances. One of the things that really prompted Boldwood to put out the first book was we discovered a fan from 1789, which had the most popular tunes from that year and their dances actually printed onto the fan. It's in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. What was fascinating about that was, so on one of the fans there was Morgan Rattler, but on the Ashmolean fan from 1789, there's a tune called La Bastille. That got me really hooked on the the social and political history that was being told through the titles of the tunes. You can kind of follow what was going on in society, but also what was going on in terms of things like Nelson's battles and various things going on around the world through the titles that were in for those tunes for that particular year. That I found really, really interesting. And so I was looking into that in a lot more detail when I started to put together right back in the first book as well. You raise a really interesting point about titles. Many tunes were printed under more than one title, or the same title might end up referring to a number of different tunes. This happened most often when a tune was used for a song or a dance that had its own name. Quite often in the 17th century, at any rate, um, it's to do with the broadside ballads that were sung to the tunes. First of all, a tune gets sung, say like Greensleeves, the ballad says at the top to be sung to the tune of Greensleeves. And then if that ballad is popular, then that will become the name of the tune. So it says to be sung to the tune of whatever that ballad was. And that process goes on and on. And does the title ever help us work out whether the tune is English? There's so many tunes with geographical references. I mean, Playford's full of them. In pub sessions, we used to do geographical Playford. So someone would start off playing Newcastle and then someone would shout out, bar them down. And, you know, it would go on and on from there. Love in a Bottle was also known as Jonathan's Trip, but it was also known as California. So you've got a sense about, you know, what's going on there. Let's talk about instrumentation, because not all tunes suit all instruments. And sometimes different instruments are more common in different places. So it makes sense that even if the repertoire travels around, it gets changed depending not only on the preferences of the musicians, but also on what instruments they're using. As is the case, certainly all of us who play, we will tweak tunes, we'll change notes here and there. It's that sense of, you know, does does this actually work for us? Whether it be at the most basic level, if I'm playing something on violin, it might just sound better if I'm playing it to get some open strings, to get that extra kind of resonance to the sound. But if I'm playing it on a concertina, I might be thinking about what's going to work better for that, that there. And of course, you know, if you're playing with other people and they're playing on an instrument that's limited by the keys they can play in, then they may change the key of, of the music. Maybe this is why Becky found mainly fiddle tunes in the collection at the Vaughan Williams Memorial Library. And it also explains what Jeremy said earlier about English tunes being played over an octave with lots of jumps, while French music, such as the brawl, tends to be written within the range of a fifth. Jeremy. If you're playing for dance, I did a recent paper on this, that uh, European-wide dance bands playing for balls indoors, so we're talking about the gentrified classes, was a very standard lineup, which is two fiddles, 
or possibly a fiddle and an oboe, and a bass, which might be a double bass cello, bass viol, or a, a bassoon. I think the fiddle was used a lot, but then, of course, these bronze might have been written for outdoor occasions. And in Brittany, for example, they got their own bagpipe, which they use, which may constrict things. Some instruments are made to be played in fixed keys, so they don't have all the notes like a violin or a piano does. We call these instruments diatonic, as opposed to chromatic. The hurdy-gurdy and the bagpipe, for example, only play in particular keys, and these instruments are more common in French music than they are in English. Becky. The hurdy-gurdy and the bagpipe are a lot more, particularly in central France, the hurdy-gurdy was used a lot more, and that it's drone-based and diatonic, and, I mean, it's got a range of an octave and a half, but most people don't want to use the dusty end because it just doesn't sound great. So they're generally limited to kind of 10 notes and either in D or G or C or F, depending on, you know, what sort of tuning you've got for your hurdy-gurdy. And I think the fiddle was not so popular in central France. It was used a lot in the Auvergne. And I think there, their bourrées and stuff have a generally a much wider range because they're more fiddle-based. An instrument I used to play not very well was the pipe and tabor. And the, the three-hole pipe, the English version, you, you can't have a lower leading note up to the tonic. If you look at the tunes in The English Dancing Master, quite a few of them can be played on the pipe and tabor, but you often you need to adjust the penultimate note to be the note above the tonic from being the note below the tonic. There's been a shift on the folk scene in the last couple of decades, with more people now playing older tunes and even researching them themselves in archives and online. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience of this in the last 20 years or so? Becky. When I formed Boldwood 2003, I wasn't hearing very much music from 1650 to 1800 at a folk dance at a Cayley. We wanted to be playing 3-2 hornpipes, but whatever they did to 3-2 hornpipes in 1695, we now don't know. We don't know if there were ever actual dance steps that went with a 3-2 hornpipe. But we were finding that in Cayleys, we were being limited to... 4-4 four, four hornpipes, kind of fastish tunes in 2-4, the odd waltz. And we wanted to be playing things in 6-4 and 9-4 and 3-2. And we came to realise that it wasn't going to happen at a Cayley, not at that point in time anyway. I think we're seeing more English tunes of that era in kind of general Cayley dance scenarios now than we were 15, 20 years ago. I think that era of tune, um, all, that, all that kind of repertoire, is kind of in the, the consciousness a lot more now, and even in the dance scene. I do think that the music that we're all particularly interested in is being played more at the moment. The number of reasons why, I suppose the, the, one of the biggest changes has been the advent of getting hold of this material online. So it's much easier to actually find the original things and that gets people quite excited about it. I also think that there's some really key movers and shakers in the folk world at the moment who are really interested in old tunes. It does help. Social media, there's, there's any number of groups online, groups about dusty manuscripts and things like this. It's, it's almost become a fashionable part of that. And then thinking back to the time when Verity Sharp was doing Late Junction, Verity has been a very 
strong supporter of, of this kind of music for many, many years, because it is, it's, it's fantastic repertoire that it, it's wrong in a way that it's just lying dusty in, in well, it's not dusty, of course. This is one of the things I love about it is people talk about these things gathering dust in libraries, of course, that's the one place where they're not gathering dust because they've been carefully looked after. These tunes that are metaphorically gathering dust in libraries, they are now coming out and it's just so wonderful. Let's finish with The Princess, performed by Boldwood. Thank you so much to today's guests, Becky Price, Matt Coatesworth and Jeremy Barlow. Next time, we'll move on from the history of English folk music to how it's viewed by performers and audiences today. I'll be talking with Sam Sweeney, Rob Harburn and Alan Lamb about the perception of English folk music, both in England and in other nations, and how this has affected their musical practice. If you want to find out more about these topics, or about my knowledge exchange work between the University of Oxford and the English Folk Dance and Song Society, you can Google Knowledge Exchange and follow links to Oxford's Torch website. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review this podcast, which will help others to find it. This podcast was produced by Birdlime Media. <laughs>